Hello. Welcome to episode 124 of Lunar Poetry Podcast. My name is David Turner. How are you lot? In a break from the norm, I'm joined for this episode by, or this intro to this episode by PJ, the repeat beat poet. Hello, PJ. Hello, David. Hello, listeners. Um, in accordance to social distancing measures, we are recording this chat or this intro via video call. So it will be a little bit glitchy. I'm going to sort of fade Peter in and out as we're chatting, um, just in case there's any hums from the uh, from the internet. The reason for PJ's presence is that this episode is to be the penultimate episode I produce and will in fact be the last I introduce. I'll be standing down completely after episode 125 and what will be just about six years of my life. Um, PJ, I think the best thing to do is for you to introduce yourself a bit. Absolutely. Thanks for bringing me on to this. Um, You're very welcome. By way of introduction, (laughs) I feel welcome. I feel welcome. By way of introduction, um, I should say that uh, so I'm, you know, 25 years old at the time of recording. I've been a poet for five and a half of those years, um, almost about the same time that you've been doing the Lunar Poetry podcast. And the full amount of time I've been a poet, I've been listening to the Lunar Poetry podcast. So it's informed a lot of the way I approach thinking about my own work. But, you know, broadly, I'm a poet. Um, I'm a DJ. I'm a hip hop artist. I've spent the past three years specifically on a sort of permanent tour, um, gigging at a really, really high rate to think about my performance. Um, But I've always loved podcasting. I've always loved journalism. Um, I was a film writer and uh, and a film like journalist for about three years, four years as well. And so what I'm hoping to do with the Lunar Poetry podcast in the instant is more of the same really um i love how clear this podcast is and how much freedom it gives the poets to talk about the work um so that's the sorts of things that i'll be doing as i take over the good ship lunar poetry podcast um as regular listeners may know pj has already been part of the series both reading his own work in some of the special readings we've got he's appeared as a guest and has also interviewed um thomas aru at the time we were able to have guest hosts um had i done my research properly and uh, prepared for this intro i would have uh, found out and listed all the episode numbers that you've been part of pj but i will put them in the episode description so if anyone wants to check out your time as guest or guest host uh, they can just click those links i think the important thing to say at the moment is that there won't be any massive changes immediately when pj takes over but I will be stepping away completely, and as time goes by, PJ's going to be free to develop the series in any direction that he wants to. Um, just a rough timescale, we, we had chatted, hadn't we, PJ, that it's going to be around October time that you start producing your own episodes, which will be the sixth anniversary of the series. Yeah, October is when we plan to move back to a more regular release schedule. We had this plan before the global pandemic And so we're doing some readjustment to the pre-production, but to you, the listener, the end result should be the standard high quality that you have come to expect from such an esteemed podcast. I don't want to drag this intro out too much because I know people are here for 
our guest in the new episode. So I just wanted to introduce PJ so you knew his voice and when he popped up on what will be my last episode, the next episode, 125, it wasn't some massive surprise and I hadn't just walked out on all of you. To today's episode, back on the 7th of February, um, I met up with Caleb Clases and publisher Jess Chandler to talk about Caleb's latest book, Fatherhood. This conversation was recorded before COVID-19 had hit Britain, so is refreshingly free from any virus chat. Fatherhood was published by Prototype Publishing in December 2019, was longlisted for the Republic of Consciousness Prize and is Caleb's debut novel. After reading Fatherhood, I became a little bit obsessed with the book and its combination of fragmentary prose and sequences of verse. It took some planning, but I was very excited that Caleb and Jess could make it over to Walthamstow to chat with me. As always, you can download a full transcript of this conversation over at lunapoetrypodcast.com and you can follow me at silent underscore tongue on Twitter. There will inevitably be some new social media accounts to follow once I step away from producing, but I'll let PJ tell you about that in the next episode. That sounds right, doesn't it, PJ? Yeah, it sounds good. Anyway, that's all from me and PJ, but I'll be back at the end of the episode with some more information. But one last thing, if you enjoy this episode, do tell people about it. In light of recent events, it's become even more difficult to reach new audiences, so do shout or even whisper about us. And lend PJ as much support as you have to me over all these years. Here's Kayla. In the tenth month of my wife's pregnancy, I put aside my lifelong commitment to avoiding harm and purchase mousetraps. The rodent population had exploded during spring, and now the summer was so hot that the young mouse families were fleeing the plane tree's inadequate shade for the cool of the ancient riverbed which lay under the cellar of our rented basement flat. They emerged in the kitchen at night to lap at the spilled juice of the pineapple intended to entice our unborn child into the visible world. Under the greasy sun, a fox made parenting look elegant. She licked her paws while three squealing cubs dug up a piece of black meat with four legs and a collar. Inside, we sat naked between mounds of bleached white baby clothes and watched the World Cup. All these men are alive, I kept thinking. Layers of shadow billowed on neon turf. The players played on regardless. My wife had a job. I had a grant to write a novel. A distant relative from the Richmond branch of my family had died, unexpectedly leaving us a slice of the proceeds of his bedsit. The will stipulated that we use it to invest in a piece of England. I scrolled through photographs of farms and beach huts, unable to take myself seriously enough to consider a period terrace. When I imagined life outside the capital, above ground, I already missed the city. The feeling reminded me of the final summer of university, a blank stretch between exams and results when everything is over and nothing has yet begun. Ten years before, we had shared an itch. We left our notebooks out for one another to read. After lunch, we took pills and whispered about our social responsibilities. On the way from one pub to another, we broke off from the group to find a bedroom. Any bedroom. Not since then had my wife and I been so physically involved. We were the only members of our group, but we snuck quietly to the bedroom. We drew the curtains on the watching fox. This time the logistics, pillows, headboards were confounding. We rolled away from one another and lay still. 
It was necessary all of a sudden to be polite to the baby. I took chocolate bars from the labour bag and we ate them in the dark. We dreamt we were too old to move. But the next morning we slotted together in ferocious agreement. I loved, I don't know how to say this, the feeling that I was drawing the baby out into the world and that my desire was extending a greeting to which an unseen body might respond. There were so many pulses, in the throat and in the taut round stomach, in the places where bodies curve into themselves, fold and open. Each of us pulsed with the blood of the others. I counted myself, counted myself again. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> um, and so to the listeners, um, I'm no doubt repeating exactly what I've just said to you in the introduction, which I am going to record in two months time from speaking now. But in a break from the form of the last few episodes, I'm joined by two guests today rather than one. I always say it's because they do a better job, but it's more because I don't have to do the research, but I'm going to allow my two guests to introduce themselves. So we'll begin with Jess. Hello. Thanks so much for having us. I'm Jess Chandler and I run Prototype, um, publishers of Caleb's novel Fatherhood. Um, hello, I am Caleb, Caleb Places, and I am the author of Fatherhood, uh, which Jess has published. We're mainly meeting because I bumped into Jess. Which book fair was it, Jess? Hmm. Was it? was it the small publishers? I think book it was the small like publishers fair, yeah. And um, I asked Jess what she would recommend from the table, without putting you in an embarrassing situation to your other authors. You did slide farther towards me first, but it's because we'd been talking about my own writing and interests, and you thought it might interest me. And not only did it interest me, it really blew me away. It's one of the best books I've read in a really long time. But more more than that, it just it hasn't left me since the first time I read it. It's really been haunting me in a way in a lot of ways and I was really desperate to talk to both Caleb about the book but I thought it'd be really nice to bring on a publisher and chat about how these types of books get put together and why but I'd like to just begin with asking you Jess how do you sell this book to people in terms of what description do you give it? Good question I think it is a novel so Although its form is experimental in many ways, I haven't had any problem in simply kind of selling it as as a novel um, with a narrative, um, with many of the kind of traditional novelistic elements about it, um, even though it combines prose and poetry. When I was sent the manuscript, I was particularly interested in, in or, or had been thinking about poets who were writing novels. And that was one of the things which drew me to it because apart from just the fact that it does have sections of poetry I think it is written with the kind of ear and care for language and rhythm of a poet which Caleb is as well so I think that's something that I would emphasize when describing it to people as well that it's that it's a kind of hybrid of forms I had also just become a mother um, when I read it and I think that obviously meant it resonated with me in lots of ways Um, although I think I'm also careful to tell people that it's not just a novel that will feel relevant to people with children because it's about so many other things it's a novel about yeah I don't have any children no it's not and it's um, 
I mean, we'll no doubt get on to the yeah. reasons that I enjoyed it, <laughs> even though yeah, I am... Yeah, you don't uh, have to be a parent. No, um, even yeah. though my wife and I have decided to do the horrible thing and not give any grandchildren to our parents. So. <laughs> um, and that, Caleb, that description from Jess, how does that sit with what you feel about the book? I don't, I mean, I'm very grateful for Jess taking that responsibility away from me <laughs> because I wouldn't necessarily know how to describe it. Although, I mean, the nice thing about the novel as a, as a form is that it's kind of capacious enough to withstand quite a lot of a different you know internal difference um and still kind of qualify as that thing is there anything is there anything i would add no no that's like the reason i was thinking about that today as i was uh sanding a tabletop so i've been at work and doing my having my normal routine but i had a few jobs which allowed me to think about what we might talk about mm. today which is not always uh afforded to me when i'm at work but um <laughs> We briefly touched on um, Sanatorium, which is the new book, uh, which by the time this goes out, will be out by Abby Palmer, who regular listeners of the podcast will know that she's been a guest a few times. Because I'm looking at the cover of the book now, and the tagline is memoir, creative nonfiction. And I suppose if I was trying to describe father to people, I'd be tempted to use the word memoir. Yeah. But that loads it with this idea of it being truthful in a way that I don't feel is perhaps that important to you. No, no, it's not. And I I think I think that's partly where coming from poetry and this was in it was initially written or large sections of it were written as kind of standalone poems with their own integrity. And I think that it it was probably written with with the, the sense that comes from poetry where perhaps that that question of fidelity to reality, is it fiction or is it nonfiction, doesn't quite pertain in the same Way. So then when it kind of evolved into becoming a novel or when it was kind of when that seemed necessary to write it through and kind of uh, give it the momentum of of prose, that those kind of assumptions then carried over for me. I think maybe there's a there's a distinction. I was reading something recently which made a distinction between the personal and the intimate. And I think it's a very intimate book, but it's not necessarily personal in the sense of you might not be able to I mean I kind of know what's fictional and what isn't but it's not that important to me what's fictional and what isn't that's a really um, brilliant way of uh, framing it actually the the difference between the personal and the intimate I read Fatherhood just after finishing my own book and talking to Abby about sanatorium and we were both trying to find ways of explaining to people that whilst aspects of our own writing seem very truthful the realness or the truthfulness of it is not what we're aiming for. But I think we are, both myself and Abby, both aiming for intimacy in our writing, which the fatherhood is intimate from cover to cover. Right. I didn't really want to know whether it was the truth or not. Before we go too far down that route, how did this uh, manuscript fall into your lap? Was it a submission or...? It was actually um, sent to me by... Caleb's agent at the time but I kind of knew of it because I published Caleb's poetry in um, the test centre which is the the kind of former incarnation of prototype in our magazine and Caleb had sent us what essentially was the early manuscripts of of this um, which was um, a poetry collection to my kind of part shame but probably for the right reasons I think it's now proven 
we decided not to publish it and I think it just it hadn't quite found its voice and form yet which probably Caleb came to agree with yeah I absolutely loved it there was just no no doubt um, that I wanted to publish it and I was so excited when Caleb said yes um, so yeah it came to me as a as a prose manuscript although I knew its history which made it even more interesting I think um, as somebody who publishes both poetry and uh, prose I don't normally write many notes and I try I try not to because I find it um I was going to say ruins my interview style. I don't really have an interview style. But um, I feel like once I've written a note, I should read it. Yeah, yeah, I know exactly <laughs> and, what you mean. And I don't yeah. necessarily... That's not, that's not the best way, right, is it? Yeah. No, no. But there was one thing that kept coming over, and that's, this is definitely a question for both of you, but how relevant was it that such an overwhelming series of subjects was confined in such a small book? Or was that a consideration? Because I just found it so... Uh, Every, the stuff that was happening was so massive, but it was really interesting that it happened in such a neat and confined object. Yeah, so I think maybe I've got two answers to the, that question. One of which is um, to do with kind of craft, and one of which is perhaps more psychological. I think I, w- I became aware at the point when I realised that it needed to be a prose novel, that there were all these parts which were pulling in all different directions. And I, and I realised that I needed something that was in, in a way as simple as possible to hold it together because it was just going to like, you know, on the verge of kind of collapsing under its own, not weight exactly, but of the divergence of its parts. So there was like a, a need for something simple that would that would kind of sustain the intensity because the one thing I wanted was like the... I was like interested in like what's the highest resolution you can write or something, you know, and particularly this experience, which seemed to me so much about like a different perception of time, a different perception of uh, or a new kind of intimacy that I hadn't um, or I couldn't quite accommodate. And so those kinds of questions then seemed much more, I seemed much more able to contain them in a, a very simple fictional frame and then I could write that through in in terms of brevity I think like that idea of containment which is also sort of like it comes up quite a lot in psychoanalysis is like how do you contain your an experience and how can you kind of provide a containing experience for say an infant I think the book then to some extent took that on for me like it was a way of containing certain things and I've never really thought of it as the, the smallness might be a part of that, but I suspect <laughs> it is. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I hadn't thought of that either. I suppose, I suppose it's, it is it is dealing with incredibly profound things, parenthood being one of them, but also um, big issues facing us. All, you know, it's, it's climate changes run throughout and lots of incredibly big things, but it's also... It's also small in its in some ways. It's kind of it's dealing with quite a specific moment and time and characters, so that it it doesn't feel like it's squashing things or that it's too constricted. I think. But does that does yeah. that, does well, that make for, sense? That, that's me, not to belit- to make it sound one of the too things. Small. Yeah, um, yeah. There's a smallness, a, a kind of privateness, a roundedness to it that suits that. I think. One one of the things that I was really aware of when writing was like um, was like this this feeling of like 
a very a world that had being a father become very like small and very yeah. like happily yeah. so but also that there was a point at which I mean that's quite like literally broken open you know something like a flood <laughs> literally come you know breaks down the walls between the outside and the inside and so I was well, those were kind of things that were like very very I was very interested in like what's in the foreground and there was like this feeling of there just being this almost like all foreground until the background like meet that kind mm. of ruptures that I found it fascinating that idea of um bringing a child into the world but also being fearful of the world mm. around them so mm. at the same time the father in the book is trying to teach his child about the world around it whilst also trying to completely protect it from the world around it <laughs> yeah. and there's that, that conflict between the, these massive subjects but i suppose yeah because it does uh, cover climate change and becoming a, a parent both of which are enormous subjects but they are very very much the personal experiences of the yeah the narrator aren't they they it's not a selfish tale or a selfish individual, but it's very much in the moment. And I suppose that's, I've seen my friends go through yeah. having young babies and I suppose you don't, they don't seem to have much time for anything else other than yeah. making sure that this little person doesn't come to any harm. Yeah. I, I found it fascinating actually the, um, the work that the, the lead character does on recording weather systems mm. and how that really mechanical view of uh, recording the data mm. without really having any emotional attachment to it <laughs> until a flood <laughs> almost destroys their whole home is a really interesting <laughs> um, blinkered way of being very, very acutely aware of the facts around them, but without realising that it's coming for them until it, it's too late. Yeah, yeah. Mm, and we need for a feeling of control, whether or not it's actual control but that sort of ways of feeling that you're able to kind of measure and mm. understand and that that becomes so important when everything is slightly in chaos in typical fashion for prototype it's a beautiful book and it's really nicely put together and it looks fantastic and i suppose such a chaotic and fragmented story is contained really well in, you know because that, as you're saying Caleb, that could have gone off in so many different directions and it yeah. feels like you're constantly pulling it back as the author and I suppose it makes sense to work with a publisher that is so, when you want to be, mm. so neat and mm. regimented. And, and yeah, that yeah, also yeah. helps yeah, to tie and in. And the it. simplicity, I think, like, as yeah. we were saying. Because we've spoken so much before, Jess, uh, you and I, about books as objects yeah. and not just as reading yeah. material. And Which is weirdly relevant for the... It, yes. Novel, not yeah. to I don't know how much we can give away. away. But yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, I suppose we can explain maybe that... Yeah that notebooks um, in particular are very important in the novel and are something impermanent or things that can actually be lost. Yeah. Um, I mean, we mentioned the flood, so we might as well go. I think uh, it's okay. Yeah, yeah. so um, yeah. I, I keep wanting to say you. We've just established it isn't necessarily you no. in the book, but I was going to say the narrator of the book loses a book that I've been previously working on to the flood. Yeah. I did have a note on that because I'm always wondering, I'm quite keen to sort of shed myself for possessions every now and again and uh, I'm quite happy when I'm part of me is happy when I lose a notebook yeah yeah it yeah. frees me up a lot I suppose question to both of you how do you feel about lost work it would be a different question for you just mm. because it might you might mean losing someone else's work yeah <laughs> yeah that responsibility might not be yeah good um 
I suppose the attachment to your own writing and how you move on from it. Um, I don't really know if that's yeah. even I mean, a so question. It's, it's painful to read yeah. about. You know, you, it feels devastating, yeah. as I'm sure it would if it were your work. But it's sort of generative as well. Reading yeah. Fatherhood and reading about the flood, I didn't have any feelings that, oh, no, what if I lost my work? But I know how devastated my wife would be if she lost her writing. Yeah. And it really got to me, actually. Um, that's what I mean about the intimacy. In the book, there are elements outside of parenting that yeah. are very relevant mm. to... Mm. Yeah, so, yeah, so it's, that's like a really brilliant question and not not something I've really thought about. I do know that I, do, I couldn't look... So that part of the story is largely true. I did lose, or at least there was a flood in which the only thing I cared about in the house, which was the, all of my notebooks going back from to when I was like, you know, five, were in drawers, which were then, which were flooded. And I couldn't look at them for like a year. And I didn't realise that I was like not looking at them until I realised <laughs> that, oh, like why, why, you know. And actually a lot of this book was written in that kind of lacuna, was l- written in the in the period between the, the flood happening and then me looking at the, 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 the notebooks again to see what might be... Um, kind of retrieved from them and I don't know I don't know what I feel about that I I genuinely don't but I think that something happened there might have been something liberating about that I think the other thing is that it was a kind of metaphorical breakdown that was also the moment when um, I was watching a child develop language and we've just been Mm. talking about this and there was some there was some weird correspondences between losing a whole load of literal text and watching a child quite like build something up, <laughs> which is kind of weird. Also, weirdly, it's so it's something to cherish, but it's also weirdly. I found it weirdly challenging. <laughs> I don't quite know why. I think I felt a kind of loss of her, her of her babyhood, right? And there was so there was also that all the things that you gain from talking to someone, but also that you kind of, I felt like it was separating her from the world in mm. some kind of spooky way that I now don't really care about, but at the time it really mattered. Mm. And so I think that all of those things were maybe, you know, mixed up. Yeah, that discovery of or, and development of language as a, brings with, or you because suddenly become aware of this understanding developing in that, and knowledge and a different way of viewing the world that's more real and more open to pain and I don't know there's something Mm. kind of scary about it I think Um, I don't know whether this will it feels like it links but if it doesn't I'm going to cut it out (laughs) Um, so I started writing again in my early 30s I spent five weeks in a psychiatric hospital in South London um, and that is not the only time I've been in hospital and um, it's, it's the most recent time and I started writing again I was encouraged to keep diaries and notebooks yeah. I have a box of those notebooks and they feel like they've been in a flood. Yeah. And I'm wondering now, because just to hear you talk about not necessarily wanting to approach them, but eventually you do, whether that's why that, I, I, I don't necessarily, I wouldn't mind if they were lost, but they whilst they're there in semi-permanence, well, I mm. mean, they are very real, but they're in <laughs> a strange state because of the way they were written. I'm now wondering whether that was why that element, that part of the book 
remained with me as well as mm. other aspects of it because I think I've spoken to a lot of writers about uh, who've unfortunately lost notebooks or hard drives or computers or had their phones stolen or whatever and whilst it's sad for them and I can empathize it didn't really bother me yeah yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. but it was something about flood yeah so one, yeah. Of, one of the strange things about a flood and I don't know if this is quite relevant but is how much life it contains. Mm. So you think of it as something that could destroys human life, but it's full of bacteria and slugs yeah. and like and, and your house is full of creatures, right? Afterwards. And I was very aware of like these things growing moldy and things growing on them. And th- there was like another kind of life that was coming out of this. And I was very struck by that at the time when I'd chosen to procreate and to like generate more life. And like, you know, it's quite a sort of, and and the kind of feeling of like, well, who gets to decide these things? It does seem quite arbitrary. And, and of course, knowing like the kind of profound destruction that humans are causing, that, 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 that made me feel very ambivalent about it. You know, I couldn't feel all that, um, well, it stopped me from feeling too sorry for myself, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> I think now would be a perfect time for a second reading. Okay. Don't mind. So I'm going to read a new poem from a collection which uh, which Prototype will publish, I think, yeah, next, next year. year. Next year, um, Which is really exciting. Oh, I thought you meant you think... As in at all. I thought you might get a live rejection. Then, yeah, have, don't worry. <laughs> I knew about it. We liked it, but not quite there. Yeah. <laughs> we appreciate your submission. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. It's called IKT-SVO. The sun rolls into the chest of the vending machine. Dusk tangles off the shelf. Four billion chickens close their eyes and dream of dreaming. Tucked under the advancing shade, bodies lie down, row upon row, sinking deep into the mosses growing in the corners of the server. Everywhere the earthworms return once again to their volume on the afterlife. Notions of proximity and distance, above and below, in front and behind, cease to be altogether precise. A cosmonaut, whom Gorbachev had sent up to Mir, still a Soviet citizen, falls in Kazakhstan, as if to a foreign land. Perched in the nest that hangs from my father's chin, I look down at a small child with no shadows to speak of on my entire body, and I laugh. The door swings open and the shopping arrives. The household insects chuckle in the less obvious machinery. Then it became apparent that it was not because we were laughing that the house was falling down. There was a hurricane. A swollen purple face bubbled up from the broadband. Here comes the sun, only five billion years to wait now. I find myself tumbling out of the sky. I meet my reflection with a gentle splash. As it lumbers over the horizon, plants send their roots deep in search of nutrients, cracking rocks. Domestic canines hear the gentle grinding noise as the darkness is shelved and the people rise, struck by the will to stand. The plane lands the same time it departed. Four billion chickens open their eyes and dream of dreaming. Thank you very much. I'm going to have to be quite strict myself and uh, ignore that. And can stick to uh, father. <laughs> Otherwise, we'll be here all afternoon. Um, thank you. Uh, 
Actually, we didn't cover that at the beginning, Jess, so maybe it would be good to just explain to the listeners which strand of prototype that will be published under and how it might be different from... Is that uh, okay? Do, do, would you like me to read something from... No, no, no. no is that right? Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't want to not think of course. <laughs> yeah, so Prototype publishes quite a range of different things. Um, so Fatherhood was part of well, the first book in the prose strand I've, I've called it prose just so as to keep it open because i am open to things that aren't so obviously classified as fiction the next book we're doing will be a poetry collection it is a, it's a poetry collection um so that fits very neatly into the poetry strand yeah we we publish other th- things that are more interdisciplinary is the kind of best word that I can think of for it really but often collaborations with artists things that are combining different art forms and that would probably not find a home with more traditional publishers where the kind of definitions of genre are more defined so yeah this will be this will be a poetry collection which is really really exciting um, and it's how I you know I first knew Caleb's work um, as a poet um, so it's really great to be able to yeah, see and support both of those aspects of his writing. I'm going to bring my angry fist down on the poetry now. Let's get back to the prose. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I just saw, I, I don't Google myself, but I, do, I just saw on um, Goodreads, somebody had written a review of this, which says, warning, contains stretches of poetry. <laughs> and I thought that was so good. Because they <laughs> wow. could st- it's like, watch out, watch yeah. out, guys. Um, yeah, so my next question will actually... Um, <laughs> you can need that warning as well. But um, <laughs> so I wanted to talk about the fragmentary nature of the book itself, how that developed in your own writing. I obviously want to bring Jess in on the conversation as well, but we, how did the book develop after you submitted the manuscript? I mean, what was the editing process like? The final manuscript? Yeah. We didn't do very much editing. Sometimes I think things benefit from mm. my input or just some somebody's kind of external input, but it was it was very finished. Um, I think maybe because Caleb had been working on this piece for a long time and mm. it really had found its form, and it just it, I don't think you should edit just because you feel that's your role and therefore you should make changes mm-hmm. because it makes you seem more engaged it just was we the main things we discussed were to do with the format and how to best um convey that into the book into the physical yeah. form right. so those kind of really nice discussions like i mean a lot of things that would appear very boring to an outside <laughs> observer but about like you know should we indent this paragraph and how should no, we, i think we've, you you've got a captive audience actually yeah, with this okay, podcast of people who are actually <laughs> yeah. give a shit about all there of are that. small <laughs> decisions that, that can you know but many emails based on be. your re- response there if we begin mm. with caleb if you could just tell us how, how the book came together and what what the uh, <laughs> so i'm laughing about what we chatted before we started recording but how the process of writing the book came together yeah and then we can talk about how sure. Uh, you both yeah. work together in the form of the book and yeah. w- what the final object is. Um, so uh, go. <laughs> um, yeah. So I suppose the, the the I mean it really did start in, in kind of July August 2014 when my when my first daughter was born, and I, I actually started. I I decided that I was 
so overtaken by this experience that I should probably write something discreet to get it out of the way so I wouldn't just write about it all the time. Um, and then, of course, that totally backfired and I realised that this was something... That both were something that felt kind of vital to me um, as writing, but also felt like a kind of practice that was um, that I was interested in seeing how it affected my life. So parts of that were published in kind of sympathetic journals. Then at a very early stage, actually, I sent something mm. to Jess. It was kind of useful to have my suspicions. What's, how do, what do you say? I have my suspicions confirmed. confirmed. That's it. <laughs> that that wasn't right. And then um, and then it developed into a pretty full full blown poetry collection. And then there was a point at which I realised that it needed. It was just not quite pulling all in the same direction, and that there was a. It it had started to become prosier and prosier, but it didn't have the momentum. It didn't have something pulling it through, and that was when it changed. And I wrote that, I pulled it together in like a summer. Mm. Once and summer. what was the main aspect of the narrative that you felt was key to tying everything up? Yeah, so I think, uh, I think there were those like, there were just like these two fixed points really. There was, the, there, was the, there was the birth and then there was the flood and it was like writing through them and then beyond um, was really the, the discovery that I could do that. Yeah, and then that was quite quick. It's interesting to hear you though now say that the poetry collection initially wasn't coherent enough and was pulling in too many directions yeah. to then end up with a book that is still pulling in many directions. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it does feel, I mean, it doesn't feel like it's disjointed in any way. No, but I think, yeah, but to me, at least when I was writing it, like I wanted to get to a point where it's like, it's like that tension is what's interesting, you know, it's like, is it going to fall apart <laughs> or like, is it going to carry on going? And right, that was like where, where it felt exciting to me. So then how did the process work between the two of you, Jess, in terms of putting Yeah, I mean, it was, a, it was quite a seamless process, really. We, so this, as the first book in this new series, I mean, series in the sense that it, that each book will follow certain aesthetic rules. They'll, they'll all be different. Um, but the same format, um, this kind of simple cover with an illustration. So this was, with this book kind of helped us establish that format, um, which was nice. Um, but it also meant we had quite a bit of freedom um, because nothing was yet set. But yeah, the we we had quite a bit of fun choosing an illustration. We found a, a great um, Norwegian illustrator called Mariana Arneson who. Um, published some of her paintings in a, another book that we did and saw these illustrations that were on her website and just they were kind of weird and abstract and surreal and we tried a few out and chose this image which kind of seemed to speak to a lot of things in the book although it was something that we had just found it wasn't made for the book um, and then it was just a case of working out how to kind of typographically um represent the different tones because the, the the narrative does move between bits of dialogue bits of poetry bits of kind of almost stream of consciousness prose where it's sort of long unbroken passages so we just wanted to make sure that it was would be visibly that those would be vis visually represented um so that the reader sees where these kind of changes are um and it was yeah there was it was very 
quite a nice creative process. Um, I quite enjoyed the way the use of indentation and italics in yeah. patches throughout the book yeah. then linked you into longer passages of, of yeah. what seemed like more sort of stream of consciousness or um, if we say poetry in this mm. just mm. for this conversation but yeah. um, however you want to define it it was quite it's quite filmic quite cin- cinematic in, mm. the, in the use of um, sound in where you get sort mm. of uh, key signatures to characters and stuff and yeah, you don't realize nice. it at the time that you're reading it or hearing mm. it but later on once those voices become more prominent you're suddenly you're already used to it's not it's not a sudden attack in yeah. change of style yeah. that's great that that worked. Yeah, no, that's like, yeah. what a beautiful description. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 and I think because we did actually, that was really interesting. That, that that was really the extended period of the process yeah. was like really quite like nitty gritty, yeah. and trying to like realizing that I thought I had certain consistent mm. ways of because the typography is really important. Exactly that as like mm. a way of navigating yeah, like and signalling yeah. different kinds of prose. Because yeah. I knew that it was going to be difficult moving in and out of these different tones and moods and ways of reading. So I'm really pleased if that's that's the case, is that it feels like you've got these like footholds. I'm, I'm not saying that other publishers or authors are unaware of this. It's, I, know, I know there are different constraints mm. in, in terms of budget yeah. and stuff. But I think too often it's forgotten about yeah. how much trust you're putting in the reader to hold with yeah, you yeah, when, you're, yeah. when you're trying to do something that doesn't just follow the standard form of a book. Yeah. And if you're asking someone to jump between three different voices, you perhaps need to give, you need a handle, don't you? Yeah. To, especially totally especially if you want yeah. people to engage Definitely. immediately with a piece so of You really miss something if you don't mm. give it that attention. I should also just acknowledge the really brilliant designers and typographers who I've worked with for many years and they were very much involved in this process and it's really great to be able to leave certain decisions to them which we did and they have an eye for what works visually mm-hmm. so having that kind of third voice is really something that I think adds a lot to the books and which yeah. maybe isn't you know perhaps it's a kind of luxury in the process that not every publisher kind of goes into you often you kind of have a a standard typesetting process but this is very much a kind of design process Mm -hmm. so the the interior is designed as well as the cover and I think for a novel like this which where it really is important you'd you'd really be missing something if you just kind of paste it all in yeah so who is the second author in the series? I know I did see that you posted second the picture. Author, so but... the next book coming out, just before you will hear this podcast, <laughs> is a collection of short stories by Jen Kalea, whose poetry collection um, I published about four years ago. And she's also a translator, uh, translator, poet. Yeah, it's a really great collection. Mm. And yeah, for people who... If you want to look it up, it's called I'm Afraid. That's all we've got time for in it. If Kayla was just saying earlier, I showed him a copy. It's kind of weird looking at the two side by side because they're the same but different. Um, and what what do you see as the the theme through this series, this new process, or is it is it still in development? Do you know in in terms of content, I there isn't particularly a theme. It's I want I want it intentionally so I want it to be open. I suppose the privilege of being a publisher on your own is that you can really choose things that you love and believe in. I think 
I I think often they will be works that are doing something unconventional, which some publishers might find more risky. Um, but that by my hope and kind of conviction is that by continuing to take those sort of risks, it becomes established um, and people trust your choices and that therefore the risk becomes less even though they might be kind of doing something daring in their form uh, so for the listeners benefit Caleb has to catch a train so we, um, I'm just <laughs> being conscious of uh, not running on for too long um, I think we might wrap up there other than to say does your new poetry collection have a title yet uh, it's called My Little Finger. My Little Finger. I will try to... I don't know whether I ever actually managed to do this fully, but I will put episode uh, links in the episode description really? to things that we've been t- chatting about. So you can... If I say that now, it will remind me to put it in the outro at least. <laughs> <laughs> or I would be really kicking myself when I forget to put it in. Um, thank you so much for oh, making you. the effort to thank come you. to Walthamstow to chat. Uh, no, you're really welcome. I've been wanting to chat to Jess for a long time about Prototype. And then this book came along and it was just great to be able to wrap the two things into one. I hope it's given people some sort of insight into how books go together. But then you'll have to learn about your own book, won't you? Because they're all different. Yeah. <laughs> and none of this will be relevant to your book. <laughs> it was just wasted an hour, but it's fine. <laughs> Nothing's a waste, is it? <laughs> um, I did write down a note. I don't know what it said. I, I wrote in really big letters, um, how do we let go? By ending this conversation, that's how we let go. No, <laughs> well, it, that's, you know what? I've seen that question. I mean, just I've seen it written there. Yeah. And so I've been trying to think about it. <laughs> I mean, so when it, what it makes you think is um, one of the things that still I don't quite understand about this book is the, uh, is the anger <laughs> in it. <laughs> and um, I knew it had to be there. Mm. And I knew it had to be where it was. Um, and I knew it had to kind of explode. And I still don't quite understand uh, about that, but that seems to me to be about letting something go. Yeah, and that there was something withheld and something held on to that sort of needed to like come out for mm. Both, I think, for me in my real life, but also kind of for the, the shape of the book and for the narrator in the book. I think that's partly about letting go of certain expectations mm. if like that you live with uh, particularly because I am a man and so I perhaps know better about them certain ideas about what it is to be a man and then when that when those ideas come into conflict with a very very confused sense of what care might look like for a man and gentleness I think there was a kind of like what, where does this go, right? And there was a, there was a kind of collision there that had to had to kind of find some some safer <laughs> outlet, right? So that's my I don't know where it goes except uh, oh sorry I don't know how we let go except that in this novel I think there is like a large letting go somewhere in the middle. I yeah <laughs> I think that there's there's a aspects out there of. Um, the fear and anger of not having control over things. Yeah. And then mm. the reconciliation of realising you just won't ever have that. Right. And then perhaps you have to 
let go. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. What it, I don't know, but yeah, it, it's interesting. I'd forgotten to... Um, there were other things I wanted to talk about first, but yeah, the, the anger in the book is uh, fascinating. But I, I don't know, but it, it, I would perhaps say it's high levels of frustration more so than... Like, it's not not raging through the no, book or anything like that, but no. it, it, you can yeah, see there's, yeah, a, yeah. there's a, an anger... I don't want to use the word bitterness either, but, but there's, it's a combination of all of those things. Yeah. And it, it struck me as though it was a, a losing of control or a lack of control that was the root of that. But that was my reading. Into yeah. It, but, um, yeah. That might reflect more than what's going on in my head. Which is, and I don't, I mean, this just occurs to me, but it's the only point in the book where it becomes uh, uh, metrical with the verses mm. like... Um, it's not iambic pentameter, but it's 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 essentially iambic. So it's like a point at which it's like highly structured kind of metrical verse. Yeah. At exact, exactly what you say, where like there's a kind of loss of control, and so this sort of like acts as some some net <laughs> for that. Yeah, I'm glad we uh, that was bothering me. I'm glad we got around. <laughs> that. Okay, we really should uh, wrap up. We'll take a third and final reading. Please, okay, Kat. thank you. But before we do that, we'll say goodbye because we're just going to fade straight out. Thank you thank again, you Jess. So thank you very much. Thanks and so thank much. you, Caleb. It's been thank really you. fascinating. Thank you. Okay, so I'm going to read uh, a passage from towards the end of the book um, when the father and his daughter are on a train and the only other people on the train are a blind woman and her dog. The train moved us on. The woman was soon reading again more engrossed than before. I wanted a dog to guard me while I exposed myself to words. My daughter pinched my arm and pointed out a cow I couldn't see, or saw a cow that wasn't there, or thought about a cow, or felt forming the idea of a cow, or said a word that sounded like cow, like ow, the reaction she pinched me in search of, or her own reaction, now that the thought, if not the teeth, had sunk in to the dog's snap. And I tucked her hair behind her ear and said, I love you. Low branches swept and bumped the top of the train. Something fell through the window. It was a painful sound lying on the table. Squirrel, my daughter said, I touch it. There was blood on the table, the smell of pine disinfectant, the ragged, grey and auburn body uncollected. The dog lost control. The woman tied to the leash slammed into the chair in front, banging her head, the book on the floor. The squirrel jumped at the window. My daughter burrowed into the seat. The blind woman shouted a magic word and her dog remembered its training. Nothing moved except the squirrel's flexing stomach. It was loosened by the fall. It was pregnant. It was too early or too late in the year for a squirrel to be pregnant. The young conductor had arrived and I told him the squirrel was pregnant. Acne, the smell of sore skin. He hovered a few seats away and muttered about rabies. Mess with his machine. It doesn't need a ticket. The dog was conflicted. The blind woman stood, apologised again for her outrageous companion, and requested with forceful politeness to know what was there. The image shot through her body. She held her hand to her throat. She said that it must be reassured that we are not a threat. She took a packet of crisps from her bag. The young man announced that we were six minutes from the airport. A pregnant squirrel required us to restrain ourselves for six minutes. Life seemed loosely held together and brief and weird. And then what? I opened the crisps and shook a few onto the novel I'd been reading. The squirrel flinched. 
I saw three heartbeats in the loose grey pelt. My daughter gripped my arm and giggled. I whispered, the squirrel is going to eat some crisps. He's had a shock. He's going to feel better. I don't know why the need for a fictional pronoun except the bruised bones within the womb within the metal train carriage. My daughter became aware she herself could eat the crisps. The squirrel clattered its fingers on the window. I remembered holding hands in A&E after the red square of thick blood. On the train I asked the blind woman quietly, not wanting the animals to hear what we would do when we got to the station. She said, she'll smell her way outside, three minutes of life until the airport. The delight so sincere in my daughter's eyes that I thought I would concoct any scene, even this one, to share it with her again. The woman was whispering to her dog. Her dog bore a grin as wide as my daughter's. The pleasure was infectious. The train slowed. I placed my daughter in the aisle, keeping her hand in mine. I fumbled our large bag. We shrieked, thinking it had crushed the squirrel. But the squirrel was by my feet, by the dog, in the dog. Hello. You hung around to the end. Grab yourself a Jaffa cake. As you will have guessed by now, that was Caleb Clases and Jess Chandler. If you'd like to buy a copy of Fatherhood, then the best place to do that is over at the Prototype website. Simply follow the link in the episode description. There is currently free UK postage included on that title until 12th of April, so just do it already, yeah? While you're over at their website, you might also check out their latest prose offering. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for, a collection of short stories by Jen Kalea. And as mentioned in the conversation, Caleb's second poetry collection, My Little Finger, will be out with Prototype in 2021. As mentioned in episode 123, my debut poetry collection contained was published by Hester Glock Press in February, and its release into the world was more than a little blighted. First by a pretty destructive storm, which meant I had to cancel my Cardiff book launch, and then the Bristol book launch, which had to be cancelled because of the global pandemic. I did though manage to get at least one launch event in before all this trouble started, so I fared better than some. If you'd like to support me and my wonderful publisher, Hester Glock Press, then follow the link in the episode description to buy a physical copy of the book for £10, plus packing and postage, or just £4 for a digital copy in the form of a PDF. And the book is also available as a series of recordings over on my personal SoundCloud page. Another writer whose book launch was affected by recent events is Abby Palmer, mentioned a bit during this episode. Her book, Sanatorium, from Penned in the Margins, is just great. If you like the sound of fatherhood, then you'll love Sanatorium. This is the blurb. A young woman spends a month taking the waters at a thermal water-based rehabilitation facility in Budapest. On her return to London, she attempts to continue her recovery using an inflatable blue bathtub. The tub becomes a metaphor for the intrusion of disability, a trip hazard sat in the middle of an unsuitable room, slowly deflating and in constant danger of falling apart. Moving between these contrasting spaces, bathtub to thermal pool, land to water, day to night, Sanatorium braids fragments of reportage, 
poetry and found and posed image to form an immersive exploration of the female disabled body. In the space between gravity and weightlessness, waking life and out-of-body experience, readers are invited to question if water is a means for rehabilitation or if their narrator is simply dissolving. That's probably enough from me now. But please do welcome PJ when he introduces the next episode and show him lots of support when he begins releasing his own episodes later this year. My dream for this series is to see it reach its 10th anniversary, but all I've got in me is to drop it off at the doorstep of its 6th. The series needs a new shot of energy, and I think PJ is just the person to provide that. I'm sure he'll do a great job of guiding you through a world of fascinating and innovative poetry. Much love. Stay home and stay safe.